Welcome back to Libromania, a podcast for the book obsessed from the Close Reads Podcast Network. Each week I'll be chatting with authors, biographers, designers, collectors, critics, and other people who help make books so worthy of our attention. I'm David Kern. This is chapter 17, in which I'll be chatting with Levi Stahl about great summer reads. We all read in different ways all the time. We all get different things from our reading at different times. Like this morning on the train, I was reading Mary Midgley, reading like serious, if, if very accessible, philosophy. And then, you know, tonight I might read a crime novel. And what I'm aiming for with both those is very different. But I wouldn't necessarily on a rank or or make arguments about the value of each one. It's, it's just that you don't always want the same thing all the time. You don't always need the same thing. Summertime is a great time for reading. Maybe the best time for reading, other than, I don't know, a long holiday around Christmas time or something. There's the beach, there's parks, there's warm evenings around the fire or on the deck. There is the mountains and mid-hike, that little break halfway up the mountain. There's nothing quite like opening up that book you've been submerged in for several days and getting lost in it. Maybe sipping some iced tea so you don't sweat too much. Maybe swatting away some flies as you do it. Or maybe you just like to read in the comfort of the air conditioning. But either way, there's something romantic, shall I say, about summer reading. So I wanted to have on somebody to discuss the joys of summer reading and maybe offer up some suggestions to add to your book lists as if you need them, if you're listening to this podcast. But nonetheless, I thought it would be a good time. So I called up Levi Stahl. Now, Levi is one of the best Twitter follows for lovers of books. He reads widely, he reads well, and there's plenty of miscellany in his reading. So I wanted to chat with him. He is the marketing director of the University of Chicago Press, where he's worked since 1999. He's the editor of The Getaway Car, a Donald E. Westlake nonfiction miscellany, and with his wife, Stacey Shintani, of the Daily Sherlock Holmes, a year of quotes from the casebook of the world's greatest detective, which the University of Chicago Press will publish in October. He tweets mostly about books at Levi Stahl. So that's at L-E-V-I-S-T-A-H-L. Levi and I each chose five books to recommend for this summer. There was a lot of common ground on why we chose the kind of books that we chose and in the categories of books that we chose. So we alternated back and forth and had a good time chatting about these books, recommending books to each other that we'd never read. And hopefully there'll be a few books in here that you will have never read. So without further ado, here is my conversation with Levi Stahl about great books to read this summer. Enjoy. Levi, thank you for, for joining me to talk summer reading. Uh, hard to find something I would rather discuss than books to read at the beach. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> yeah, I, it was funny. I, I saw a friend on Twitter recently who's a good reader raising the question of, of what summer reading means for people because she didn't really feel that she read any differently in the summer. Mm-hmm. Interesting. And I feel like I kind of do. And I, so I, I definitely do. Yeah. Yeah. How, so, how, okay, let's talk about that then. So, you are one of the more um, well read people that I have ever interacted with. And mostly I just know that because I follow you on Twitter. <laughs> so, <laughs> you talk about reading a lot on Twitter. And um, I definitely recommend people follow you there. And, okay, so I think I have a general sense of the sort of, I don't know, the the way you curate your reading lists and the wide variety of interests you have from even just within, say, specific genres. You have, you're very well read even just in crime fiction or mystery fiction or something like that. Do you find yourself focusing more on 
specific genres in the summer than you do at other times of the year? Or do you read more of one genre in the time of year? Or do you read more nonfiction as opposed to fiction or poetry as opposed to plays or something? Do you, how do you, do you purposefully curate your summer lists or does it happen naturally? I just asked a bunch of questions, but I'll let you talk now. <laughs> yeah. I th- and I think they're all, they're all interconnected in some yeah. ways. Um, yeah. I think what it, the simple version is I find that in summer, I think about what would I like to read outside? What would I like to read sitting in my back garden? And then there are parts of that that are like, I know I'll be going on vacation with my family and I get a lot of just sitting around reading with them on the beach or on the porch. Yeah, yeah. Then, and so I'm making a stack of books that I'm looking forward to for that. Um, it does end up usually being a little more fiction heavy than the rest of the year. Uh, you know, I'm always, like a lot of readers, I think I'm always reading more fiction than nonfiction, but the balance yeah, yeah. isn't wildly off. But then in the summer... Yeah, what I really tend to want is a novel I can dive into that's going to hook me and keep me going all day. And so, so for me, a lot of times that does mean a little more genre fiction than normal. Like maybe instead of a, one crime novel a month, that might be three. Or yeah, um, yeah. Or or going back to an author like um, like say Stephen King, where mm. eventually I'll probably read almost all of his, except maybe the very bottom tier. Yeah, and yeah. you know, every summer I'll I'll grab one, and and it's there's a bit of it that I think is is comfort food mm. uh, style yeah. reading, yeah, and, yeah. and King would qualify there, where he's somebody going in, you know, the strengths, you know, the weaknesses, you know, the general outline of what you're going to get, and so if that's what you want, and that is often the kind of thing I want at that time of year, you're it's great, you know what you're going to get. Um, yeah, in a different vein. Um, I, you know, I just I just last week read a Trollope novel, and it's a mm. similar thing where you you know in advance, yes, this is exactly the thing I was looking for, and it's going to deliver. Mm. Mm. You you kind of want a book that's like it's like eating ice cream, right? <laughs> Sometimes yeah. you just want a book that's you know it's not necessarily going to be. I don't want to say it's not nutritious, but you know it's going to be a different form of eating, right? You're going to be maybe a little less health conscious. You might be you'll be, you'll be fine with it if it melts all over your fingers. Yeah, and I, and I think that's the I think one of the things that I really like about talking with people about books in a in a non professional setting is realizing that we all read in different ways all the time, and that we all get mm. different things from our reading at different times, like. You know, this morning on the train, I was reading Mary Midgley, reading like you know, ser- serious, if if very accessible philosophy. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, tonight I might read a crime novel. And what I'm aiming for with both those is very different. But I wouldn't necessarily, I don't know, rank or or make arguments about the value of each one. It's yeah. it's just that you don't always want the same thing all the time. You don't always need the same thing. And I guess the value of being well read or why wi- or widely read reading widely is that they begin to sort of influence one another the way you perceive and think about different authors or you know even two different books from the same author will begin to inform your reading of 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 one another of each other. I was talking to um I'm doing an interview kind of back and forth right now uh, with John Wilson about his life as a as a book critic as an editor, and he talked about how one of the things that he likes the best is the way great book reviewers sort of go in and out of, you know, they might be reviewing one book, but then there's 25 references to other books that they love and how mm-hmm. the, the reading of those books and the comments on those books inform the book, the new book that they're reading. And that that's one of the things that marks, you know, a, a great book review. And, it, and that's true, I think, of 
just a, a great reading life in general. When it's it's that that moment where you look back at yourself when you were say an mm. undergrad or you were twenty five, yeah. and so you look back at your reading then, or maybe you even go back and reread some stuff you did then, and you realize how little you knew of the context in which it existed, and mm. and how limited your understanding was. And mm. you know you, there are trade offs too because it also probably isn't going to hit you with the same force that it did then. Yeah, yeah, but but the, yeah, the ability to over time just accumulate all these different ways that the the books you read interconnect and affect each other is it, for me as a reader is really powerful. Mm. Sometimes I think summer is just a good time to it for reflecting on all the books that I've been reading over time. It's I find myself rereading a lot in the summertime, and you actually did a um, you posted a Twitter thread where you talked about. Rereading, and so so we're going to talk today about you know we each chose five five books for the summer recommended for summer reading. Did you find yourself going back to any of those rereads that you posted on that thread? Yeah, a couple of the ones I I picked for this list are ones from that thread because I do I do think summer is a really good time for rereading, and and I I find that so I I don't. I don't have kids. I've been in this, working at the same place for 20 years, been hmm. living in Chicago um, for, I don't know, 25 plus years. And this is all a build up to explaining. I feel like in a, a life like that, where you don't necessarily have a lot of external markers of how time passes, you know, hmm. I think if, if you have yeah. kids, it's like, oh, my, my kids are growing up. And yeah, obviously there's yeah. changes to yourself as an adult regardless. But sure. I find that, that latching on to some sort of seasonal structures is actually a kind of a helpful thing for me in a hmm. in a way that like I wouldn't I wouldn't in, ever do well living somewhere like LA where the seasons can kind of just float by without hmm. noticing um, yeah. and and something like rereading in the summer really is a it, in my mind both it feels comfortable as a summer activity and it feels like a almost ritual is probably going too far but like a hmm. a a sort of ritual activity of, okay, well, time has passed and I'm going back to this one and what's it like now? Mm. And you, have you found yourself being um, purposeful about about um, reading around the seasons in that way to help you mark time? Or is it more like, oh, you just look back and you realize, oh, I, that's how I am marking time. I, did, I didn't mean to be, but that's just the way it's working. Yeah, I think it started out inadvertent and has become a little bit more formal. Although, mm. still, again, I am very much yeah. of that uh, camp that I, that if I remember right, Samuel Johnson is in of, of basically pick up the next thing in front of you. You know, that's that's what you're going to read next, and don't yeah. you don't necessarily need a plan. Um, but I do partly. I think my rereading and thinking of rereading in a structured time passing kind of way um, is rooted in reading Anthony Pohl's Dance to the Music of Time so many times. It's hmm. it's my favorite novel, and it's a 12-volume novel about the life of a, a narrator who's very similar to Pohl living through the 20th century. And I am hmm. kind of always rereading it. I, I would, for years, my job took me to New York twice a year, and I would read one of the volumes on each trip. So I'm probably on my sixth or seventh reread, and it is very explicitly a book that is about the changes that you encounter as you age through life. And so reading it mm. continually through your life, you really do see how it's different and how you're different. And I think the lessons from that are things that I've found I apply to other books now too. Mm. So I, I do a little bit more explicit, like 
I will go back and revisit Sarah Orne Jewett's Country of Pointed Furs kind of mm. kind of deliberately most summers. Mm. Is that one Took of the books? And the Green Knight. Like at, oh, at, at the holidays, I'll reread the Green Knight. Yeah. And it's yeah, yeah. It, Which it's translation? A, it's a marking. I, I go back and forth. The um I was I read this last year, I read the Simon Armitage, I think for the first time. Mm. Uh, and I read the Merwin one recently. Um I don't know that I have committed to a favorite yet. It's one of those books I kind of <laughs> just want more and more. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How, when did you first read that book? I think it was probably, it may have even been in I, in high school, although that seems a little extravagant for my rural school. Um, <laughs> definitely by college. Yeah, and I yeah. do remember the first time I read it, I thought, well, this isn't any good. <laughs> <laughs> Take some time, I guess, right? Yeah. So, okay, we are, like I said, we are going to, um, we each chose, well, we, we talked about each choosing five books to recommend for summer reading. But I am curious, did you have any honorable mentions that you didn't, you didn't include in your list, but you would like to mention to the listeners of this podcast that you think definitely read this, maybe not on my list, but still worth reading. Um, yeah, I will name one big clump of books The So I've been, one thing I've been working on through the spring is I, I've been reading in order to write a review essay eventually about her. I've been reading the entire works of mid-century Chicago crime novelist, Craig Rice, it was a it was a woman who wrote under the name Craig Rice from the its forties into the fifties. She was reasonably successful in her time. She actually was the first crime writer featured on the cover of Time magazine, um, and she wrote a series of novels about a Chicago lawyer who ended up doing a lot of detective work, uh, and then some some short stories and some other standalones. Most of it's out of print. Most of it's forgotten. I came to her because Donald Westlake was a fan, but. Oh, she's really clever and and fun. The novels are are kind of they're light as can be. It's it's sort of like she's managed to marry the the tone of the the light tone of a cozy with the voice of hard boiled. Huh. Uh, it so the Chicago that these people are are working in is a Chicago of gangsters and heiresses and casinos and. <laughs> and it, mur- murder everywhere you look. It's it's like it's they're written in the forties and set in the forties, but it feels very twenties. And they're so much fun. So I I would totally recommend if you can seek out any of Craig Rice's books from the library. Or there's one standalone in print from Pensler Publications from their American Mystery Classics series. Um, she is a fun fun read for the summer. So kind of like a. Chicago Ross McDonald with a little bit more lightness to it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, like if Ross McDonald didn't actually believe that this stuff mattered, which which sounds actually <laughs> like an unendorsement, huh. but it's not because they the fun she's having with it and the fun she's having with the language and the characters and their interactions is is the point. It's what makes these books worth reading mm. and a lot of fun. Hmm. So and how and can you spell that last name for us? Uh, just, just like it sounds, Craig C R A I G Rice R I C E. All right, great. Uh, we'll put that in the show notes as well for people. But if people are sitting on their phone right now and listening and want to go on Wikipedia or Amazon or something, I figured might as well just make it easy for them. So, okay, um, let's dive into the five choices that we had. Did you structure your choices in any specific way? Did you choose from different genres, or did you just go straight up? These are my five, the five books that I recommend the most for reading this summer. Um, I just went right at it. So. I will um, 
I, I can just, I don't think I have any, any order or plan to it. It just, this is a stack of five that I would take out to the garden with me. Okay. So let's do this. Let's go, let's alternate. So you choose one, I'll choose one, you choose one. We'll go back and forth and we can see how things kind of shake out. Does that work? That sounds good to me. All right. So you go first then. What's your first? Well, I will start with the one I actually picked up at the bookstore today and that I've been waiting for for months, which is Underland by Robert McFarlane. Oh yeah. I heard about this book. And it was just reviewed really well today in the Times by Dwight Garner, uh, who, who dinged McFarlane a little bit for being occasionally, you know, he's a nature writer. He's occasionally a little rhapsodic. Um, he's in, in his mid forties like I am, but there is a, a little bit of an air of fogey to him in a way that I find <laughs> endearing, but that yeah, Garner yeah. definitely pointed out. But this is his, his big book about basically what's underneath us. It's a nature writing book about the earth uh, as seen through caves, through the ground underneath us, rather than necessarily what, what grows and what we see around us. It's what supports that growth and what that can tell mm. us about the history of our planet. And McFarlane is just a wonderful writer when it comes to seeking out interesting people, talking to them, seeing what they're doing, and then taking you along with him. I'm really looking forward to this book. And it, my friend Stephen Sparks, who has a great bookshop in Point Reyes, California, right on the edge of a national seashore, and who, <laughs> partly because of the mix of customers he has and partly because of his own taste, uh, sells a lot of nature writing really well. He said the other day he ordered 500 of this, which for a shop that, <laughs> that does not have a giant physical footprint is a really good marker of he, this is a book that nature writing fans are going to want to read. Mm. And, and it's the perfect outdoors book. Like again, I, when I'm thinking of something I want to read in the garden, this sounds great. Yeah, or like on a, you know, you go on hiking and you're going to stop for an hour and read, you know, yeah, on it'll, a mountainside it'll be a or something. Just, right, to carry along with you in the, through the summer. Mm. Um, so, so you mentioned a nonfiction book there. I'll mention a nonfiction book too. That's, that's also new. I think it, I think it just came out, but it, um, it's called range by David Epstein. It's done fairly well. I think subtitles, why generalists triumph in a specialized world. Have you read this? No, I don't, I don't think I recognize this at all. This is interesting. Okay. So this is a, he used to work for sports illustrated and he was an investigative reporter for Pope. ProPublica, and he wrote, previously wrote a book called The Sports Gene. Um, and this is a book, um, it's kind of in a Malcolm Gladwell-y kind of vein, but it's very interesting for people who are in education or have kids. Um, it talks a lot about, for example, why athletes should not specialize in one sport, but typically do better when they play multiple sports. So it breaks down the science of all that. And one of the reasons I'm most interested in that, and that's just one example, one chapter of it, but I'm fascinated by the way nonfiction researchers turn research into like really interesting prose. You know, they, they can write a book that is a page turner. I'm just fascinated by that, by the the way great, great... Um, there's an art form to that, I guess is what mm -hmm. I'm saying. Like there's... It's, research is one very specific thing and lots of people are good at that. And then, you know, maybe writing very interesting nonfiction prose is interesting as well. But the way that, that someone who, like David Epstein, um, or maybe Malcolm Gladwell or someone like that can take all that research and make it so interesting is fascinating to me. So this is a this is a great, I think it's a great poolside, great beach book. Um, you know, and you can read it throughout the whole summer. And but I also found it to be you know kind of a page turner as well because the research is is so fascinating. And as someone who does have who does have kids and works in education, it it's um it's fascinating from that perspective as well. 
So again, that's range by David Epstein. And as a, someone who's been working in marketing and university press publishing for 20 years now, um, there's nothing I like more than the praise for the generalist because <laughs> in a world where we're working with specialists all the time whose work and knowledge I really appreciate and who, who really make you understand how little you know of any one specific thing relative to the experts, it's satisfying to occasionally be reminded that there, you know, there's value in being a generalist. <laughs> it's yeah, a yeah. good thing. You know, it's, it's interesting because I, I kind of was putting this in my head. They're not really similar books in a lot of ways, but I was putting it um, up against or along with Benjamin Dreyer's, um, Dreyer's English or Dreyer. I'm oh, yeah. Actually, um, an utterly correct guide to clarity and style. And he's the, well, he's the, um, was it the New York Times? No, who, he's, uh, he's, no, a, he's Random a House. Yeah. Random House. Yeah, yeah. He's yeah. with the publishing he, house. Benjamin's a friend. He's great. Okay. Yeah. So I, for some reason, I, in, in my head, I had these two books. Um, in the same category because they both are about these very sort of it's about things that in a lot of hands wouldn't be very interesting but then they they produce these books that are so entertaining even as they're getting into the minutia of the subject and I, there's yeah. a real art and a real skill to to doing that in a way that people who like to read i don't know crime novels or fantasy novels would enjoy just as much as their genre fiction and i'm i'm fascinated by that art by that yeah, skill and, and actually i like the linkage there too because Benjamin's world is one where, on the one hand, he has a very specific skill and set of area of knowledge. On yeah, the yeah. other, he applies it to the work of being a generalist. He applies it to mm. taking to looking at the books in front of him at Random House as their copy chief and helping make them better. Mm. And that's so I like that linkage. So th- those are two non you know new nice hardcover uh, nonfiction books I've been carrying around uh, and probably will continue to do so all summer. Okay, what's your next book then? Um, I'm going to go to a reread now, which is a book by J.L. Carr that is from, I think, 1984. Um, I should have had this in front of me, called A Month in the Country. It's a novel. The NYRB Classics republished it um, as fairly early on in their run, so probably almost... 17, 18 years ago. Um, and it's set right after World War II in the countryside of England, a, or sorry, World War I. A veteran returns to, he goes, he's come back from war and it's a slim novel and very delicately, Carr helps you understand that he is out in the country restoring, working to restore a mural in a church, a country church. He's been hired mm-hmm. to do this and that in the process of doing that and of, of sleeping out in the church in this village over the course of an English summer, he is going to need to wrestle with what happened to him in war, the damage it did, and figure out what's next. Mm-hmm. It's, it's spare, it's beautiful, it's powerful. It does something that makes me want to reread it regularly in the summer, which is, it really does evoke the feeling of summer. It's that mm. that feeling that I think still lingers from childhood of suspension and also of the just the magic of the days that last longer and watching mm. them fade away. Mm. Uh, it, yeah. it, it's a brilliant book and and a, I think a, a real masterpiece of of kind of um, carefully delineated feeling and and a look at how how we get through uh, the the things that harm us. Mm. Mm. 
It's, so this is, that was made into a movie too, right? Am I picking that up? It was. Um, I forget who was in it. I've never seen the movie actually, but I just I did just look up. It was from nineteen eighty. Colin Firth is in it. Oh, I didn't Colin realize that. Colin Firth, okay. Kenneth Branagh, and Natasha Richardson, nineteen eighty-seven. Okay, that's interesting. That's an interesting group. I I may have to uh, investigate because I do. I love the book so much, and I'm so glad that the the NYRB republished it and, and brought it to my attention. So was it out of print there for a while then? Yeah, it was, and I don't know for how long, but it definitely had had faded away. And and they, you know, one of the things they've done so well as a publisher is bring back a lot of things that have been forgotten. Hmm. Um, you know, you're, as you're mentioning that, it kind of reminds me of one of the books that I have on my list, which people who've listened to any of our podcasts for a while or know me well know that I probably assumed that I was going to mention uh, Wallace Stegner's Crossing to Safety. Um, have you read that before? The only Stegner I've read is uh, Angle of Repose, which it's one of those weird things where I really liked it and then just didn't keep going. And mm. every once in a while, I, I saw that you guys had had been talking about it recently and I thought, oh, right, I should, I should actually read more Stegner. Yeah. Now this to me, I, th- I think it's actually a superior novel to Angle of Repose. I think it's got a, um, I mean, I mean, Angle of Repose won the Pulitzer. So I, I guess that's a bold thing to say. <laughs> but um, I think it's got like a more readable sense of the internal life of the characters, if that makes sense. Like, I think you can, you can really dive into their inner life in a way that's a little bit more um, summer readable, if that makes sense. Because <laughs> there's a, you know, it's not as, uh, esoteric, I think, as Angle of Repose can be at times. Um, but I think it really captures some of the things that you're saying about how um, the way the things we, we experience alter us in ways that we're not always aware of. Mm, okay. and it, it takes a long time sometimes for that to happen. And it, it seems like maybe what you're talking about is, you know, the novel you're talking about, that seems to be a, a theme in it. I haven't read it, so I, I don't, maybe I'm putting words in your mouth there or at least assuming things that you're not saying but in that way i think there's something about summer reading that for me i like to have something i like to read books that where there's this sense of a lot of time passing i like to kind of settle into you know sometimes a character's life over over decades you know i I love reading lonesome dove during the summer because you just kind of have to settle into it for a long period of time um that's, I guess that's an honorable mention. But Crossing to Safety has that for me and, it, and the way that it captures the passing of seasons themselves in the book and the way the seasons are tied to the seasons of our lives and the way our relationships change and alter and how those alterations in relationships change us. I find that just very appropriate for the summertime for some reason. I'm sure a lot of people would rather read it during the fall because it's not necessarily the most... Um, it's not, I wouldn't say it's a joyful novel per se. <laughs> So some people like it to be, you know, something a little bit more sunny, I suppose. And I will get to PG Woodhouse, but but, <laughs> but anyway. So that's the uh, Crossing to Safety by Wallace Stegner will be my second book and the first fiction one that I have to mention. I think, yeah, I think you've sold me on that. That's good. I will, I will get back onto the Stegner train for after twenty years. <laughs> it's great. I, I mean, I love it. I, he's, you know, it's not one of his Western novels, and he's kind of known as being one of the premier novels of the West. It actually takes place through much of the Midwest and he, he is in Madison, Wisconsin. So some of those places might be recognizable to you as a, someone from Chicago. Um, okay. What's your next one? What do you, what do you have next? Um, I am going to, going to go with a, a kind of ongoing read for this one, which is the Canterbury tales. Mm. I, I think like everybody, I encountered them as a student at some point And then um, at some other point read, 
read at least a lot of them in some sort of translation. But in the last couple years, I've gone back and found and gotten the just like a regular old Penguin edition of the Middle English of Chaucer's original mm. and been reading it here and there and did some last summer and it was great fun. And part of it is being reminded that you can actually just read Middle English pretty much. There's the Penguin edition is mm. nice because they do have some, uh, they've got definitions of some words at the bottom of the page. It's easy, like just functionally, it's easy to use for the words you don't know. But you can actually get into a rhythm and roll along and read it. And it's, but at the same time, it's just unusual enough in terms huh. of yeah, the, yeah. The, the visuals of the words, the feel of the words, yeah. that it feels old and strange and compelling. And hmm. then the stories are just fun. Uh, yeah. you know, they're, they're dumb and bawdy <laughs> and vulgar and you know, occasionally a little pious. And, yeah, yeah. and you can just read one of the tales and then set it aside and go back and read another one later. So that's one that I will probably be doing that with for several summers. Uh, hmm. And something about the the like it starts in spring with the famous lines about you know in springtime young men's thoughts or minds turns to thoughts of pilgrimage. So it feels yeah. like the right thing in the late spring early summer anyway. Yeah. If you told me that if the research came out that Chaucer specifically did wrote all those during the summertime, I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, it, it it's the feel of somebody just having fun with stories and that in itself just feels very summer like do you have a specific tale in in the canterbury tales that you most that is just your favorite <sighs> that's a good question um i will admit i have trouble remembering which is which but um it seems like part of the point <laughs> yeah and and like in the moment you very they're very distinctive yeah um yeah, but yeah. the one that is um that everyone always comes back to is the wife of Bath's tale because it's just so extensive and so much fun and absurd. There's one where there are guys trapped in, stuck in barrels while, if I remember right, a guy's trapped in a barrel while he is being cuckolded and having to, <laughs> to hear the sound of it. And um, it's kind of all, everything about Chaucer as a, as a wit and a goofball and a bod all wrapped up into one. Uh, there is a lot in the Canterbury Tales about um, people and men, especially having their um, self-importance and self-conceptions uh, kind of brought taken down a few pegs. That way, is that the Miller's Tale? Yes, I believe that is. It's been a long time since I've read it, so that, I'm not 100 percent sure that that's right. Yeah, um, yeah, I am. I am really bad about actual actual tale names, but there's so few. I've probably in the last couple of years reread half to two thirds of it of the of the tales, and there's just very few that aren't a lot of fun. Where where something like like you go to Boccaccio and the Decameron has a lot of fun stuff, but it also has a lot of just like exemplary tales of piety that don't do much for us these days. Hmm. You know that are that are still feel a little too rooted in not not it's not even about like the religious message or whatever. It's more about like the specific concerns of the time and the way that that message was conveyed mm. just falls a little flat now mm. in a way that Chaucer is, is always lively. Mm. There's a timelessness to it. Yeah. And, and even the ones where he's trying to like convey a more explicit moral lesson, 
it's couched in a story that is still pretty lively and powerful. Yeah, that that's interesting. <clears throat> that's one of the things that I think is um, challenging too about teaching Chaucer. I don't know if you've if you've ever taught Chaucer because there is this sense where the students I feel like are predisposed or have been conditioned to read something like that and expect that there's going to be some kind of a, a moral or some kind of mm-hmm. um, some kind of lesson that they're supposed to get out of it. But, but, but Chaucer, he, he has this way of um, sort of subverting that, kind of upending it. And that can be disorienting in a good way for, for students, I think. Yeah, and I think it, it's a reminder that so much of our reading as students, and I think this happens all the way through college in a lot of cases, is, a, is about is presented to us in a way that enjoyment is at, at best secondary. There's very oh, yeah, little of it that's yeah. presented to us as, you know, part of the reason you're reading this is that it's a ton of fun. And so being able to break through that, I, I imagine would be a challenge. Well, then there's, you know, there's the, the translation part of it, just getting, getting through the language and, and all the, the questions of the era, which, you know, you have to find a way to, how to, to determine how to prioritize that. And I guess it depends yeah. a lot on each group of students and what they already know and so forth. But, um, okay, let's go to, so I guess it's my turn, right? Yes, go for it. So I mentioned PG Woodhouse. I'll bring him up now. I think that reading Woodhouse and Chaucer at the same time makes sense in some ways because I suspect that Woodhouse got his sense of humor in some ways from, from Chaucer, or at least the English sense of humor was probably, uh, it was influenced by Chaucer for mm-hmm. sure. I'm particularly fond of reading um, Woodhouse's stories during the summer. I mean, I love his novels. I love Code of the Woosters and so forth. But a, a collection like Carry On Jeeves, I, I think is so much fun during the summer because you go out to the beach or you're up in the mountains or wherever you are, you're at the park, you can read one, you can read a story in one sitting and then, it, you know, the next story, the next story in a couple of weeks later, and it can carry you throughout the summer. Um, and the characters are, you know, it's sometimes it's, it's the way that um, Wooster is so, um, Lacks capability <laughs> is uh, is great for the summertime. <laughs> like you, the ability to laugh at someone is uh, sometimes sometimes a little bit of relief. But then also you kind of see yourselves in him, and um, he maybe <laughs> on your worst days you see you see yourself in in, uh, in Bertie Wooster. So I think that's a great summer read as well. And then I think too the the consequence free aspect of it that mm. that Bertie gets into scrapes, but you know <laughs> yeah. he's going to yeah. come through. That's true. Yeah, yeah. And at some level, so does he. Because yeah, exactly, because he has he has Jeeves. He has Jeeves. <laughs> yeah. No, I there. I feel the same way about about the about Woodhouse's stories. There, there's just about no volume of them that you wouldn't be successful with if you took it with you to the beach. It is so. It's amazing the uh, level of success he had. How I mean how yeah. rarely there's a dud. I mean, there's certain he, stories that are better than others, but do you rarely read one and you're like, well, that wasn't funny at all. Yeah, and I at this point I've I've read probably half of his output, which is you know is a lot and still leaves a lot. Yeah, and there are yeah. you occasionally will come across phrases you've seen him use before or sure, stories yeah, yeah. that just don't quite work. But but overall the 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 level of quality is incredibly high, and the like the attention to the quality of individual sentences and the effects of of their structure and phrasing and the jokes and the way they work together is, is astonishing. And there's little things like, even if you read a story and you're like, well, that was clearly a formula that he used. He's borrowing from some previous story he wrote in the 20s or something. There's still little things like, 
he'll the words he uses for a character walking in and out of a room that just will get you laughing. <laughs> he just has a way of he can describe you know Jeeves slipping in and out of a room in twenty different ways in the same story, and just keeping track of that can keep you yeah. entertained for a whole read. <laughs> I would one other thing that I wish I had gotten to talk with Donald Westlake about is he never liked Woodhouse and hmm. and I've never seen. I've, he's, he mentioned it in passing in a couple of nonfiction pieces, and I, I've never seen him articulate exactly why. And I'm curious whether it was that he's too madcap or there's something else going on. But I, I guess I won't know. Hmm. It's interesting because I think of Wood, Westlake is one of my favorite comic writers, and there are definitely some. I can see some parallels in some of the ways he worked with sentences and plots. But, um, but yeah, is I guess no accounting for taste. Maybe there's. Is the Jeeves factor maybe part of it? I don't know. Like the Jeeves is, he can resolve, things can resolve too neatly because of Jeeves. Yeah, maybe so. Maybe like the superhuman factor of of you always turning to Jeeves for the solution. I don't know. Yeah, he's like Athena or something. <laughs> he's gonna, if he wants to fix it, he fixes it. Sometimes he leaves him to flounder, but if he wants to fix it, he usually can solve it. <laughs> yeah. All right, so we've done, we've each done three now. So at least two, if my math is correct. So what's your fourth? Um, I, here's where it gets tough. Okay. So I think I will go with, uh, another that is for me a reread, but it's such a big reread that it almost doesn't even count, which is, um, Scottish historical novelist, Dorothy Dunnett wrote, mm. she wrote, um, two major series of historical novels, uh, one featuring a character named Francis of Lyman, um, and then another featuring a character named Niccolo. They're very similar. They have a devoted fan base, um, and they're really hard to they're hard to describe and hard to locate because they're they're just not quite like anything else I've read. I I am a sucker for good historical fiction. I love what Hilary Mantel has done. I love um, Ronan Bennett's play Havoc in its Third Year about a plague ridden village. There's something about being able to inhabit the past in a way that lets a reader get there is amazing to me, but I've never encountered anyone quite like Dunnett where the way these books work, they're, they're, so let's just take the Nicola ones. Um, they're set in the 15th century, starting out in Bruges. The main character is a clothing dyer's apprentice of no real name or pedigree. And over the course of eight books, he rises to run a bank, run a private army, help develop Scotland. All of which sounds far-fetched and absurd, but the way she presents it within the context of the commercial world of the 15th century and the trading networks and the scientific and, um, and commercial and religious developments and the way she puts him into a context with both low and high figures, real and imagined, and just walks you through the story is astonishing. I've these are each of these books is about 500 pages long. They're in small type, densely <laughs> dense paragraphs. So you can really dive Talk. in for the whole summer. Yeah, and and I guess I feel like I'm not actually even selling them that well because what is amazing is how much you just get into this story, and only as you're going do you realize how much history she's giving you, how much historical detail, because it all flows so comfortably in the in the process of the story and the process of what's going on with these characters. So you, mm. you're getting, on the one hand, really careful and serious 
historical understanding, but then also absolutely high adventure drama and like heartbreaking moments with these characters. There, there's a moment in the third or fourth book of the Niccolo series that I, I, I put it down and kind of had to walk away for a, f- a few hours because I couldn't hmm. believe how, how much I was feeling about what was happening to these characters. Uh, hmm. There was, there's a story, the story goes that she was, she was in reading in bed one night in the early sixties when she was reading a historical novel and just turned and complained to her husband about how bad it was. And he said, well, you should just write one if you think you could do better. And she, she really like just took to that and ran with it for almost 40 years. Wow. And that's uh, done at D-U-N-N-E-T-T, right? Yeah. And they're, they're all in print these days. Um, and they're all pretty easy to find. She, I came across her probably a decade or so ago on the recommendation of, of uh, sci- sci-fi and fantasy writer Joe Walton. Uh, but she's getting a little more attention lately as people and, and also just people trying to provide content on the online are looking for alternatives to uh, Game of Thrones. Like for, okay, if you read Game of Thrones and you're looking for something oh, similar, yeah. you might try this. And that's not really a, I, it's a, it's a great marketing comparison. It makes a lot of sense. And there's definitely some overlap in audience, but it's also not, they're not that similar. And I say that as someone who really enjoyed the Game of Thrones novels, but these are in a lot of ways, I think more, while never being anything less than real entertainment, they're, I think they're more fundamentally serious. Um, mm. And I think they're more interesting. Mm. Where would you start? I mean, would you start with um, the I think Lyman you, Chronicles? You've got a couple of choices. The, so the Lyman books are the first ones she, she wrote. And that I think if you divided Dunnett fans, you'd have more people coming down on that side. But I actually started with Niccolo and am a fan of... I like those books better. So you could start okay. with Niccolo Rising. Or if people wanted to just give her a try, period, she did write one standalone novel called King Hereafter about the historical Macbeth that is just fantastic. Like mm. really, really intense and fun and mm. wild. There's a running battle scene in that book that run, that goes about 15 pages with reverses and surprises. And it's some of the most exciting and astonishing reading I've ever and, done. And which one's that called? This one's King Hereafter. Okay. So that's, and that's just a retelling of... It's well. So it. the the roots of Mac, the Macbeth story go up to the Orkneys and to some an, a king from the islands who briefly was able to work toward unifying Scotland very early on in like I want to say the 12th century or 13th century. And so that's the story she's telling. You can find hints of what became the Macbeth story, but I think if you didn't know it, you wouldn't necessarily spot it. Hmm. But it's it a, just a fantastic story. This sounds fascinating. I, I've seen you mention her on Twitter online, you know, but I, I've never, I, I mean, I've never really done the deep dive. So, it, and she's someone who I, I do struggle a little bit recommending because she's not for everybody. Like these are, these are books where if, if they work for you, you really have a treat in store. And if they don't, I, I think they just, they just aren't going to. I don't know. Yeah. It's not a book I would suggest somebody power through. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. But there's a real payoff in things like, you, if you read them closely, you'll realize that a like a raised eyebrow on page eight of book three pays off on page seven hundred of book six. Mm-hmm. And, She's very attentive to, yeah. to the whole the whole thing. Yeah, there's there's nothing in these books by chance or that's thrown away. At the same time, they don't have that feeling of clockwork that some books do. 
Mm. They they feel more organic and more real than that. Mm. Mm. Well, I'm going to mention a book that is um, genre as well. And well, I guess an author more. It's hard for me to choose because have you read Eric Ambler? Yeah, probably six or eight of them. Not far from all of it. Yeah, I really so, like him. Yeah, so Ambler is one of my my favorites. Maybe it's a, people who've been listening to me talk on podcasts. That's another one. They're probably like, well, he's obviously going to mention some kind of spy fiction. Um, <laughs> but for those who don't know, Ambler is kind of considered the, I don't know, the, the, the godfather of thrillers. I think Le Carre called him the source on which we all draw. And, you know, Frederick Forsyth and Len Dighton and Graham Greene all cited him as major influences. Um, so if you like spy fiction, but you like, you know, maybe the kind of stories where an everyman gets caught up in it. It's not, these are not James Bond stories. They're not as, uh, not as glamorous. You don't, he's not as the, the, the characters, the protagonists are not as, um, you know, they're not driving around in fancy cars and solving the world's problems. It's more like this guy who's in a businessman gets caught up in some kind of international intrigue or someone who thinks he's about to get out of the war gets caught up in some, gets caught up in it and has to sort of find a way to survive. Um, and he's being used by people who are much more powerful. Than, than he is. So um, these are most of his books were written between what the 20s and the 50s, I guess. Um, they're all kind of the World War One, World War Two era type spy fiction. Um, maybe they're better called thrillers because they're not. There's not really. I don't know. They're not really spies in the same way a Le Carre book has them or or a Lynn Dighton book has them. Even Graham Greene, but um, they're great thrillers. They're great. You know they involve international espionage, even if we don't technically want to call them spy books. But um, I, I love his writing. I love the way he captures the places that he goes. They take place all over the world. Um, characters are going from one place to the next. I might. It's not necessarily his most famous one, but I love Journey into Fear. Have you read that one? Yeah, that's good. It's the one where he, he's. It's all kind of most of it takes place on a boat and. You know, there's he, this guy realizes people are after him, and then he thinks maybe they're not after him, and he tries to escape, and then that doesn't work out. And it's got this bottle episode, you know, like on a TV show where it all takes mm-hmm. place in one room. It's got that sense to it, which makes it feel very claustrophobic. And Ambler just really plays to that claustrophobia. Um, and I, I, that might be my favorite, even if it's not necessarily considered by most his best. Some people would say A Coffin for Demetrios or Epitaph for a Spy is kind of the quintessential Eric Ambler novel. But Journey into Fear is a great. It's a great summer read. You know, if you're at the beach and you're killing a couple hours, or you're in the mountains somewhere, I I, I think that Journey into Fear is a great uh, example of uh, good genre fiction that's well written, well crafted, pretty literary, um, lots of references and lots of interesting characters. And I don't know if you can do better than Eric Ambler. I mean, you know, it's a matter of taste certainly, but he's he's pretty far up there in my estimation. Well, and I always really like to the way that you get from him a sense of of Europe and the interconnections that the war both mm. exacerbated or that both the, the war both caused and and used and required and the way that you know I think what we think of from over here in America as separate nations certainly are separate nations but they're also right there and yeah, you're crossing yeah, yeah. borders you're you're dealing yeah. with people internationally in a way that is still relatively foreign for Americans and yeah. he really gets that across well, and the way that that creates suspicion and surprise and openings for various kinds of skullduggery. Yeah, like the concept that, like, I don't know, Latvia is closer to Austria than DC is to New York or something. I don't know if that's actually true. I, yeah, I didn't do that, any research. But. but that feeling of right, everything is happening right here, and you have to deal with it. 
I think I came to him through Alan first recommending him. Oh, yeah, and yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. The, first is definitely a little more romantic in his his outlook and his his heroes are a little more heroic, but it's a similar thing where a lot of times it's just an ordinary person yeah. and stuck suddenly in over their heads, like the classic noir approach. I've only read a couple of first novels. I think I read, what, what is it called? Night Soldiers? Um... <laughs> the, the way I've been praising first lately is that in every every novel less happens and I like them more. Because <laughs> like, one of his early novels, I don't remember which one now, may, there's a whole, it's huge and ambitious and there's a whole story where the NKVD is hunting people and it's super exciting and dramatic. And the most recent one, it's like, I think maybe one person gets shot and otherwise it's people just kind of trying to hide out, but it's fantastic. Huh. Yeah, he's got, I mean, that's a, quite an output for him he's what is it 20 plus now yeah something like that he's he's keeps at it it's like michael connelly-esque um okay so uh like brings us to your final choice what do you what's your final choice of your five summer reads um i will go with another reread and this is one i've been rereading fairly regularly most most maybe not most summers but a lot of summers for 20 years or so now which is sarah orne jewett's country of country of the pointed furs mm. which is um 1893, um, I'm going to guess, but let's see if I'm right. Um, it's a short novel, 1896. Um, and she, it's about a woman who is, she travels and spends her summer on an island in a, talking to people in a really small village and just, just kind of spending time in a new place that is itself old and fading. Mm-hmm. And it's about, getting to know a place about getting to know people, seeing some older ways of life, um, learning from and interacting with just odd characters, people who are set in their ways or who have distinct ways of doing things. And it's beautiful. The The prose is wonderful. The scene setting and the way that it shows you the co- the Northeast coast of the United States. I want to say it's Maine. I, I'm blanking right now. Um, is really effective and and also that it's a it's a book about endings so at the end of the summer she goes home and so these friendships will be ending but then also this way of life is of these small fishing villages is also very clearly heading on the way out and that kind of melancholy runs through it all um mm. penelope fitzgerald when writing about jewett once said that um, I think what it was was that friendship for her was the world's greatest good. And hmm. this book is a lot about how you get to come to a place and start learning the people and making friends. Is this book, is this another um, New York Review of Books book? No, it's it's out in a lot of editions because it's public domain. Um, but it was she oh, okay. made it into the Library of America a couple of years ago, That this and a couple of other of her writings. But this one is by far the standout of her work. It's it's really a, a beautiful, beautiful short novel. I see. There's a um, Dover Thrift edition for yeah. three dollars on Amazon or something like. Yeah, that. it's a it's a cheap gamble to try her. Hmm. So I'm, um, you know, it's interesting. This is kind of a cheating way of doing this, but I'm looking on Amazon. I'm looking it up, and underneath it says the customers who also bought this item. You know that category of that mm-hmm. section there, and it. You know, up pops the House of Mirth by Wharton, The Awakening, um, you know, Daisy Miller by Henry James, even put in Head Wilson by Mark Twain. 
do you compare her to Wharton or Henry James? I mean, would, the same category? Oh, she Maybe feels. There? She feels more, not to say more distinctive. She feels distinctive. She hmm. um, that she's she's writing a fiction that feels a little closer to nonfiction hmm. in the in its tone and and also I suspect in its sources um, where it's you know you could read this almost as travel writing. Hmm. Um, the per- weirdly the the person I found. I've for years come back to as a comparison for her is um, V.S. Naipaul's not, uh, memoir, the, the Enigma of Arrival, about mm, living in the English countryside. I haven't, I haven't read it since the first time I read it 25 years ago. Um, I read it and this around the same time, and they both, they seemed like kin in a way that really surprised me. And that in his, in his book, he's, he's writing about being a newcomer to the English countryside and what he learns there. And in later years, when you know, the story of what a uh, difficult and unpleasant person Naipaul could be came out, some aspects of it become, I think, a little uh, almost un- less trustworthy. For example, he doesn't mention his wife a single time in this book, and she's there living with him in the country the whole time. <laughs> but it also doesn't feel like an omission that is that is done to add to this. It it. It's. It feels like an untrustworthy one, almost in retrospect. But, um, but there's a mm. similar attention to landscape and to um, the way that landscape affects the lives lived within it, and the way that isolation and um, like self-selected isolation affects groups of people. And so mm. it's it's a weird kinship, but it it reminds me of that. But but that does I think that, that does take me back to where where Jewett falls, which I think in some ways maybe a better comparable would be from her own roughly her own period would be someone like Thoreau where okay. she's she's not didactic like he could be she's not a fighter like he was but there's qualities of observation that overlap hmm, okay when you mentioned the travel writing thing <clears throat> it immediately it made me think I wonder if it's like I you know traveled to my aunt by Graham Greene or something like that I mean that's not that's a novel so but if, but it has that sense have you read that it's been I think I, I think it's been 25 years since I read that okay. um, but so I don't I don't have any really distinct memories of it I think the the other thing I probably didn't really get across is how melancholy a lot of the book is on the hmm. one hand it's about so, so Graham Greene maybe he's right <laughs> yeah it really could <laughs> because it, so much of Graham Greene is about loss or impending loss and there's yeah. definitely that air throughout all of this yeah yeah so um I, I'm glad there's some of these books I haven't read. Um I mean I expected that, but it's nice to be able to add some books to the list. Um one thing I like to do during the summer is this brings me to my final choice, is uh pick a collection of poetry. You know, usually one that's not, you know, I don't want to read like all the poems of Robert Frost or William Carlos Williams mm-hmm. or something, but a specific collection. And sometimes I'll choose one that's, you know old, you know, like a Yates collection or something. But this year, what I've done is I'm just kind of sinking my teeth in A. Stallings Like, which I've read bits and pieces of since it came out last spring. Have you read that? No, I recognize the name, but that's as far as I've gotten. She was just a finalist, one of the three finalists for the Pulitzer. Um, And I know John Wilson recommended it in his... um, Actually, I think it came out last winter. I think it came out in the fall, probably. 
um, because John Wilson mentioned it in his best of 2018. Uh, but th- it's an incredible collection. She's a translator too, so she's a you know a lot of her her poems are um, formal. You know, she's she's very attentive mm-hmm. to, to to being formal, but it's not in no way is it uh you know st- stuffy as some people might say when they read you know when contemporary readers read formal poetry. It's very modern while also being pretty tied to ancient forms and and that makes it very rereadable so what i like to do is i like to get a collection that's got you know 50 or 60 poems or whatever it is and kind of just reread them you know throughout the whole summer you know sit down in an evening or before bed or something and read five or six of them and not feel like i have to memorize one of them or know everything that's going on in it but kind of get a sense of the whole collection and then go back and reread it and kind of spend a whole summer with it and her poetry is really um really good for that because I think she has a sense of how poetry has evolved over the generations as a, you know, she's translated Hesiod and you know, she, she's a classic. She lives in, I think she lives in Athens even. So she has a real sense of the way language works in all kinds of different languages and not just in English. And I think that that is, seems to, now I'm not a Greek scholar or anything, but it seems to inform the variety of language that she uses, the variety of the forms that she uses. Some of her poems in this collection are very um, um, sort of quotidian. She writes a lot about her family and there's one on, there's a poem in there on seasoning a cast iron skillet and doing it wrong. Um, so there's, <laughs> there's things like that. So it's very, you know, it can touch on those quotidian things, but does it in a really humorous way. And I think, you know, I have kids, so you know, maybe that's part of she writes about her children, so maybe that's why I want to do it. But it also is the kind of stuff that makes for really good summer reading. It doesn't, you know, it doesn't necessarily have to be, you know, um, a selling, you know, attempting to be Richard Wilbur. Although I think in some ways she is a good approximation. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not. So it doesn't necessarily need to be super scholarly. And I don't. That maybe that sounds like I'm diminishing the quality of her her verse, but. She, man, she's good. Um, so that's great, great summertime poetry reading for people who want to do that. Um, and the other one, the other, just to throw out another one, I've been really enjoying, um, and I always kind of mess up her name, but um, Rena Espiot, do you know her work? No, that's not familiar at all. S-E-S-P-A-I-L-L-A-T. Um, she is, I believe, she's from South America, I believe, and she writes a lot of her, she's done a lot. I think she, in fact, I think she translated Richard Wilbur into Spanish. Um, I, I think she's from South America. Uh, maybe, maybe, ugh, maybe Brazil, but I'm going to, someone's going to send me a message that I'm wrong on that and they should. Uh, but her, her is another great, you know, maybe 40, 45 poems, something like that. Great for the summertime. So for people who want to spend some time on poetry during the summer, I don't know if you're a poetry reader, but uh, summertime for me is a great time to do that. Yeah, that actually sounds great. Both these sound really, really promising, and and I like the idea of of spending time with a book in that way that that you you read through it and then come back to it. That sounds great. You can't, you, can't, you know, you can't really get you can't really get a sense of a poem reading it once or twice. But I love the idea that if I read that poem and then I read the next one and then I read the next one I read the whole collection I begin to sort of get, get a sense of what holds that collection together like how, what are the threads that hold all these poems together and you know even if it was unintentional you know the things that are kind of going through a poet's head as they're working you're going to begin to see those threads and those things mirroring each other and, mm-hmm. um, and then you can go back to it again and so you get a sense of you read a collection a couple times you begin to begin to get to know that collection pretty well even if you don't necessarily 
know one poem well enough to memorize it. And then of course you end up being like, well, there's three that stand out. So those are worth memorizing or worth really sinking my teeth into for, for a long time. But I, I, I just, that's, um, it's kind of, I don't know if it's a strategy, but it's an approach that I really enjoy during the summer. Yeah, that sounds really convincing. Well, do you have any other books you want to mention? I know you. I saw in your thread you mentioned a river runs through it. Um, yeah, and like I always that. feel like I. I always feel like I need to um, acknowledge up front with that one that you know my employer publishes that book, but um, <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> I've, been, I've been a fan since long before I worked here, and it. There are few books that repay rereading more than that one. It it's an absolute masterpiece, mm. and such a good book about the outdoors in particular. Mm. Yeah, we um we have another show called Close Reads, which you might know about, and we go really deep dives into. We spent eight or nine weeks on a specific novel, and that's on my short list for this fall. Actually, of books we oh, may try to, we fun. may try to do. Maybe I'll have to get you on to do a couple of guest appearances. I would be happy to talk about that book at, at length. It's it's one of my absolute favorites. Represent the publisher or something. Um, I, I could declare my interest right up front, and and, <laughs> and then hope that my enthusiasm carries the day. <laughs> I suspect it would. All right. Well, I really appreciate the time. Um, this has been fun. I definitely have added some books to my lists and hope that you know listeners have as well. Well, thanks to Levi Stahl for joining me for this conversation here on Libromania. Hope you found a couple of books to add to your uh, library lists, your Amazon lists, well, your wish list, whatever it is. Hopefully we'll uh, see some of those show up on your nightstands this summer. Don't forget that you can follow Levi at Levi Stahl on Twitter. And don't forget about his upcoming book, which is coming out this fall, called The Daily Sherlock Holmes, A Year of Quotes from the Casebook of the World's Greatest Detective. And that is from the University of Chicago Press in October. So be on the lookout for that. In the meantime, don't forget about all the other content here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. Over on Close Reads, on our flagship show, we are reading Sense and Sensibility with special guest Karen Swallow-Prior. We're about to start Othello over on The Plays the Thing. We just wrapped up Conversations on Macbeth. And of course, don't forget about The Daily Poem, where you can get one poem delivered to you every weekday morning. As always, thanks so much for listening. Thanks for being a part of everything here at the Close Reads Podcast Network. If you like the show, please do leave us a review. Leave us that written review, uh, hopefully that five-star review. Uh, that helps us grow the audience and enables us to continue to create, hopefully, great content for you. For all of us here at the Close Reads Podcast Network, I'm David Kern. Thanks so much for listening and happy reading. Talk to you next week.